This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. I'm Carol Christ. I'm the Chancellor. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to join and welcome all of you to the Berkeley campus for what is always a wonderful event, the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. We're honored and humbled to be one of only nine universities from around the world that have been selected to host these lectures year after year. If we're to be judged by the company we keep, we could do far worse than to be joined by Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Michigan, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, and Utah. This lecture series was founded in 1978 by the American scholar, industrialist, and philanthropist Obert Clark Tanner, who was also a member of the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Utah and an honorary fellow of the British Academy. It's somehow both sobering and comforting to realize that today, nearly a half century later, the impetus behind the establishment of this lecture series could not be more germane or important. Tanner's goal in establishing the lectures through the Tanner Philanthropies was to promote the search for a better understanding of human behavior and human values, an objective that could not be more simple to describe or more complex and challenging to achieve. Tanner hoped and believed that the lectures would advance scholarly and scientific learning in the area of human values and thus contribute to the development and enlightenment of our intellectual and moral lives. A cursory review of contemporary headlines and happenings confirms that Tanner's concerns and aspirations are as relevant today as they've been in the past. As a campus community, we share with Obert Clark Tanner a profound interest in and dedication to using education knowledge and understanding to support and advance the greater good. We also share his capacious perspective that human values should be defined as broadly as possible, making room for a broad diversity of perspectives and an equally broad participation in this exploration of ourselves, society, and culture. As a result, the Tanner lecturers may be chosen from any discipline, and the lectureships can and do transcend national, religious, and ideological divides and distinctions. The Tanner lecturers are chosen based not on their particular perspectives, but in recognition of their uncommon achievements and outstanding abilities in the field of human values. The very ethos underlying the process of selection thus conforms beautifully with the underlying values that launched this lecture series. The lectures from all nine universities are published in an annual volume. In addition, Oxford University Press publishes a series of books based on the Berkeley Tanner Lectures. The 13th and 14th volumes of the series were published in 2021, and four additional titles are in preparation. We're catching up for the pandemic. Here at Berkeley, the Tanner Lecturer is appointed through a faculty committee, of which I'm honored to chair. However, it's the easiest chairmanship I've ever had. I've never gone to a meeting. <laughs> I congratulate my colleagues, Professor Jay Wallace, Hannah Ginsburg, Christopher Kutz, Kinch Hoekstra, Nico Kaladny, Kevis Goodman, Stefan Ludwig Hoffman, 
and Rebecca McLennan for their wonderful choice of this semester's lecturer, David Wharton. We're also indebted to the Tanner Lectures Board for making available funds to bring David Wharton back to his alma mater for this special Tanner Lecture. Now let me call on my distinguished colleague, Professor Saikat Chaudhry, to introduce David Wharton. Professor Chaudhry will also moderate the Q&A session that follows. Thank you. Chancellor Chris, distinguished Tanner Committee, honored guests, the entire community here at Berkeley and the Bay Area who've joined us today, it's so wonderful to see all of you come out to enjoy this special Tanner Lecture. As someone who spans the worlds of technology and business, it's really my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Dave Wharton, the founder and CEO of the Tugboat Institute. You know, oftentimes in our society today, entrepreneurship and business, which are so integral to UC Berkeley, Silicon Valley and the Bay Area and the economy at large, despite their contributions, they're often seen in a negative light. They earn a bad reputation. Why? Because in society, despite all the revolution and evolution and the groundbreaking work that we do, we do also observe that the economy is on the one hand creating new jobs and creating wealth, but also that there's a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots, and an ever-growing list, seemingly, of existential challenges that are here and test ourselves. So in that context, people wonder, is the shareholder-driven model of capitalism really equipped to help us bridge these gaps and tackle some of the foremost challenges. But you know, technology, entrepreneurship, and business can also be a force for incredible good. Both a creative and sustainable solution to the very existential challenges that we face, as well as for the upliftment of society in general, if we apply it in the right way. And so today's lecture topic on underappreciated evergreen companies, capitalism at its best, is both provocative, but actually speaks to that potential and the reality that may not be well recognized of how entrepreneurship and business can be that force for good. I can't imagine a better speaker than Dave Wharton to take us through that journey and talk to us about some of these issues given the background that he has. Now, I admit, to make my life a little bit easier, when I saw all that he had done, I tried to get ChatGPT to write the intro for me. <laughs> but it seems like our technology is not that good, because the algorithm just can't handle people who've done so many different things. So the task fell to me, with all its imperfections. Dave is, at heart, in terms of background, a serial entrepreneur and venture capitalist. He worked at HP as a high school student already, and in college. And he co-founded, just on the side, four companies, including Drugstore.com, which you may have heard of, and Good Technology. He worked as a consultant, trying out strategy consulting at Bain & Company. He was a venture capitalist at Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield & Byers, one of the most prestigious of those, as well as in private equity at TPG, part of the Texas Pacific Group, at those firms, he just happened to interact with the founders of the likes of Amazon and Google, SuccessFactors, Blue Nile, just to name a few. 
But perhaps more importantly, Dave is a proud Cal alum, graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering, bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from our College of Engineering. So it's wonderful to welcome him back to campus. He did earn an MBA from another university a little further down south, but I just can't remember the name, you know? So uh, we'll just focus on the Berkeley part for today. Now, you might want to hear about a little bit and learn a little bit about the Tugboat Institute because, you know, he's founder and CEO of the Tugboat Institute. He founded the Tugboat Institute in 2013 as a membership organization for purpose-driven leaders of successful privately held firms and coined the term evergreen companies to demarcate those that have a desire to have a positive impact on society but are economically also sustainable in the long run. They really play the long game. It counts as its members all kinds of businesses, whether it's first-generation entrepreneurs, family-owned businesses, some other employee-owned businesses as well, and you will hear from him, there are many household names in that list. When he built this institute, he started nurturing these evergreen companies in a variety of different ways. And these companies, of course, stand in contrast to those seeking a quick exit, designed to perhaps create wealth, but for a smaller number of individuals or, or groups, and instead focus on stakeholders at large and making a contribution to the community at large. They have long planning horizons and think in terms of decades, and the goal is explicitly to last at least 100 years. Some have lasted 300. The evergreen companies that Dave has helped nurture in this process collectively span industries in all spheres and also globally, and there are names that you've heard of, as I said, which you'll get to know. Now, all of this is fine, but the Tanner lectures are about human values, as our chancellor just rightfully said. So I reflected on Dave's contributions from that lens, what achievements he had from the lens of human values. In my conversations with people, in the reading that I did, in the podcasts I listened to, there's a lot out there. And what I gathered was, well, if I had to identify five human values that characterize Dave and his achievements and his person, but also the companies that he seeks to nurture, then I choose the following five. The first is authenticity. Why? Dave and his companies seem to be sincere, but also unapologetic about the mission that they have, about going against the grain and thinking about ways of doing things differently, those are the hallmarks of a change maker. Secondly, the term that I would use also, a second human value, is courage. It requires a lot of courage to challenge the status quo, and by that I, by that I mean the economic models, the social models, the employment models, that we often utilize, at least in the Anglo-Saxon world, to promote the economy. A third human value that I characterize with Dave and his companies are compassion for solving major challenges, for taking care of stakeholders and having in mind the community at large. A fourth attribute, patience. He and the companies he supports, obviously, like being the tortoise, and not always the hare. And finally, we can't solve the world's most pressing challenges if we don't have a good dose of optimism 
which is the final attribute and human value that I see in him and his companies, optimism about the fact that, yes, the challenges are great, but we can and will make a difference. We will be able to economically and socially create something sustainable and lead our Earth, lead our world, lead our planet, but maybe the universe at large, to a better future. And I think that's so perfect because UC Berkeley, to me, represents not just eminence, not just, yes, the number one startup creating university in the world, but also impact on society, which is why we will lead the world in the next 10 years and more. Today's lecture, I hope I've been able to whet your appetite about it, I really can't wait for. Because after reading and hearing so much, I'm curious as to what Dave will share about his journey about the current state of venture capital and private equity and how the economy runs and what the playbooks are, but also about not just the opportunities, but the trials and tribulations, the challenges, the creativity that he had to use in order to establish these evergreen companies and make the Tugboat Institute successful. I believe, like he believes, that evergreen companies can represent capitalism at their best and also represent what entrepreneurship should be at their highest calling. In the process, I have no doubt that, Dave, you're going to make not just contributions in terms of presenting us with a fresh perspective, but I'm sure the audience will walk out with inspiration, guidance, and hope, as will the entire community. So without further ado, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Berkeley. to turn off my phone, so I wanted to do that before I started. Uh, well, I wanted to thank uh, Chancellor Crest for the invitation. I'm honored to be here and be back at the, on campus. Thank you for the very kind introduction. That was uh, more than I expected, and I appreciate also the wonderful lunch we had today, too, with your students. So thank you very much. Dean, thank you for joining us. Acting Dean, thank you for joining us. And I want to also thank the Tanner Institute and the committee, Jay Wallace and others that uh, put this together and invited me to be here. I know this is a little bit different than the norm, but I hope you, uh, hope you enjoy this presentation. So uh, I also want to thank everybody else for joining us here and being curious enough, as you said, to kind of understand this different perspective on business, which I hope by the end of the conversation, one, you have uh, an understanding of what it means to be an evergreen company, but you also have a real appreciation for how important these companies are to society because they really are underappreciated today. So I'm going to start, make sure this is working. I'm going to start way back, uh, and way back from the standpoint that my wife and I were at the TED conference in 2013. We were lucky enough to meet Laura, uh, Louise Lakey, whose family famously discovered Homo sapiens in Africa and the rise of our species. And she has an interesting perspective on the span of humanity that I wanted to start this with is just the perspective as I start narrowing in on what's happening today. Fast 
last half, the last square, is where we have common ancestry of the great apes, which are eight to six million years. There's also what's going on in that in the last two millimeters is our story in terms of Homo sapiens. All right. I won't touch anything. Okay. So as Luis said, uh, starting out 4.5 billion years ago, uh, down to the last one, the one we're in, that last tile. And it's pretty remarkable. 14, years, uh, 14 of those toilet paper roll tissues, the dinosaurs dominated the earth. I mean, it's just hard to even get your head around how long they were around. But that's a bit of a side note. But we're going to dive into that last square. And as she said, take that last two millimeters, that's 200,000 years ago when Homo sapiens basically arrived. And then if you look at the next line there, the black line, that's 75,000 years ago. That's when they actually left Africa, the 10,000 she was talking about, in case you missed that. And then what she didn't talk about is about 10,000 years ago, we domesticated plants and animals. And for almost our entire experience as Homo sapiens, what we feared the most was nature. Animals, the weather, fires, things like that. That's what we were most worried about. This was a slide that was presented by Paul Romer, who's a Nobel laureate at an event I had about 15 years ago. And he wanted to highlight the incredible level of human progress we've seen. So again, starting back about 10,000 years ago with domestication of plants and animals, we started ticking up on this y-axis. I'll explain it in a moment. Then we went vertical. But the y-axis is a lumen. A lumen per hour work, the lumen is the equivalent of a candle's light. So you can see it would take a quite a bit of effort to earn just enough effort to get one candle's light. Then why did this thing go vertical 250 years ago? Well, that was the rise of the Industrial Revolution, the rise of capitalism. And what's amazing is that if in 1800 you wanted to buy 1,000 lumens of light, you would have to pay about $785. Today, you can get the equivalent for 20 cents. That's a 99.96% improvement over that period of time, just a couple hundred years. And the other thing Paul said, which was pretty remarkable too, is everything we have today was sitting on the planet back here in these dates. Everything. What happened? We learned how to create recipes in which to take different materials and put them together in interesting ways and accelerated our knowledge around that. So we can do things like put a man on the moon, a remarkable thing to think about. Let's look at 100 years ago, just to see the kind of progress we've made since then. So there was 13 million phones worldwide 100 years ago. Now there's 5 billion mobile subscriptions alone. Think about the access to communications, information that's enabled by those phones. 55% of urban homes, isn't that amazing? 100 years ago, 55% of urban homes did not have indoor plumbing. If you're rural, it's even less than that. Now it's 99%. If you uh, do anything about Robert Gardner, you probably didn't. He was doing early experiments on rocketry and telemetries. Uh, and then if you flew commercial in that year, 1923, you were on that airline, because that was the only commercial airline in the United States at the time. It was flying from Florida out to the islands. Life expectancy for a male, 57 years. For a female, it was about 62 years. Now it's 73 and 79. Interesting enough, it's actually come down since COVID. It was actually higher pre-COVID, these life expectancies. And as far as infant mortality, out of 1,000 live births, you lost about 80 to 100 of those 1,000. Today, it's less than five or six. And uh, 100 years ago, I think we opened Memorial Stadium here at Berkeley. <laughs> so enjoy some football. Go Bears. <clears throat> 50 years ago, if we look at economic freedom, uh, high freedom is in blue, low freedom or least freedom is in red. Uh, you can see kind of the map of the world, 1970 versus 2022. 
And what's really important here is three countries, more than anything else, China, India, and Indonesia, their move to more free economic systems, you know, replicating elements of our capitalist system, led to this result, which is the incredible decline in extreme poverty. So the World Bank uh, says extreme poverty is about $2.15 per day. Um, back in 1967, there was 2 billion people in extreme poverty. And that represented 57% of the human population. In 2021, it was 650 million in extreme poverty, and that represented 8%. So the percentages dramatically dropped, the total numbers dramatically dropped. This is just in a 50-year period. It's remarkable, the improvement we've seen. So I think it's fair to say, if you step way back and kind of look at this, we've made tremendous human progress in the spread of capitalism across the globe. But uh, there's a new, a new insecurity. It's not nature anymore. It's not the weather. It's not animals. It's not diseases. And this was a very, I thought, a very appropriate quote from Jerry Muller. He said, capitalist societies have been oriented towards innovation and dynamism to the creation of new knowledge, new products, new modes of production and distribution. All of this has shifted the locus of insecurity from nature to the economy. So what we worry about today is so different than what people worried about three or four or 500 years ago. And in 2016, Harvard did this poll of millennials and found that 51% didn't support capitalism. Even though there's this tremendous progress we've made as a race over the last couple hundred years, they don't support it. Well, my experience was very different. I had no issues with capitalism because I had the very good fortune of working at Hewlett Packard. I started working there when I was a teenager, two years in high school, two years while I was here at Berkeley. And I worked effectively for these two gentlemen, that's Bill Hewitt on the left and David Packard on the right, a very famous company in the tech circles, one that today you might not recognize for what this is. It was a different company, but this was a beautiful, wonderful company. And I learned about a thing called the HP way. And I didn't learn it from the managers, and I didn't learn it from the engineers, and I didn't learn it from the people that ran the divisions. I worked in four different divisions. I learned it from the people on the manufacturing line sitting next to me. They told me about the HPOA, about trust and respect for people, listening to customers, commitment to innovation, growth from profits, decentralization, collaboration, responsibility to communities and society, and long-term view. These are pretty good values here. Wouldn't you argue that HP had, and I think led to many other companies in Silicon Valley? Um, so my experience, I had no question about capitalism. It looked pretty good to me. And then my career from HP went to Bain and Netscape. As the professor had said, I helped with four different startups. I worked at uh, two firms and helped start two other venture capital firms. And we had the very good fortune of working with a number of remarkable entrepreneurs early in their life cycles of those businesses. But I started feeling disillusioned in 2012. And this uh, quote from Arthur Rock, it was actually taken out of the Wall Street Journal, just hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, you know, this gentleman who backed Apple and backed Intel, you know, these guys are arrogant. Uh, he was referring to both venture capitalists and entrepreneurs alike. Uh, they today feel like they want to cash out as quickly as possible. That's now not how I played the game. And then this was a more recent one, the New York Times, just a few months ago, and it kind of caught me in reflection how people were thinking about the industry. Who doesn't want to get their share, whether money, status, and fame, before it all runs out? As if that's what Silicon Valley was about, money, status, and fame. That's not the Silicon Valley I, was, I grew up in. So I started a learning journey in 2012. 
And it was really driven by this. It was time for me to raise a third venture capital fund. And then I was committing for another 10 to 15 years, and I just didn't have it in me. It just, I didn't want to sign up for another 10 or 15 years of this, even though I was committed in the first two funds for quite a bit more of a commitment to those existing portfolio companies. And so this idea was planted in my head by a woman named Jessica Heron. And we had backed her at Kleiner Perkins in the late 1990s during the dot-com boom. And she said to me in 2006, I liked you and your partners at Kleiner Perkins, but I hate your model. And I was like, whoa. I mean, at that time, I thought it was a pretty cool model, and I was pretty darn good at it. And she started explaining to me why she felt the way she did. And I started getting a little bit reflective because I understood there was some, there was some truth in what she was saying. And so I was started wondering, where are the Dave Packards and Bill Hewitts? Who's, who is starting the HPs of today, the companies with these great values? Because I'm not meeting them in Silicon Valley now. I'm meeting a lot of people who build, build big companies, a lot of people who want to generate a lot of wealth and get rich and have fame, but not, not, they didn't feel like the Daves and Bills I'd been told about when I was in the manufacturing lines of Hewitt Packard. So I went out to my network and I asked this question, who do you know that you admire and is ambitious to build a significant company but has shunned the venture capital and private equity paths and have said they have no interest in going public or being sold. Very importantly, no interest in being public, going public or being sold, and that was partly and probably primarily why they had not raised venture capital or private equity. And so I talked to about 50 CEOs in, in 2012, 2013. It started very slow, to be honest with you. Most people I reached out to said, what are you talking about? I have no idea. Somebody who wants to build a big company but isn't raising venture capital, that's what you do. That's the de facto growth model. And so it took a while to start meeting these people, and I started meeting more and more of them. And when I realized uh, through these conversations, there was really two types of model of thinking about how to build a company, really grow a large company. There was the built to flip companies. These are the ones that we know very well, venture capital funded and private equity owned. But I started seeing these companies and I started calling them evergreen companies. I came up with the term because they needed a descriptor. I couldn't figure out what else to call them because some of them were founder owned, some were multi-generational family businesses, some were direct employee owned, and some were ESOP owned, some were partnerships, and some were actually owned by foundations or purpose trust, as you may have heard about Patagonia earlier this year being owned by a purpose trust. So I want to take a little time to talk about the built to flip companies, kind of the state and my perspectives on these types of companies. I'm going to cover venture capital, private equity, and also public companies. And hopefully that sets kind of the ground for when we talk about evergreen companies in a few minutes. So most people don't know this, but the venture capital industry changed dramatically in 1995. Most people don't know this because there's very few people who were operating in the venture capital industry before 1995. I was one of the very few at my age who was actually doing this. I knew about six people. But this company, Netscape, was founded in 1994. 16 months later, in August 9th, it went public. It was losing money but growing very fast. Up until this period, you had to be profitable for eight quarters, and you had to be growing for eight quarters to be considered viable for a public offering. And the underwriters would tell you, you better have four quarters of visibility into growth and profitability, or we should wait. And the expectation was the management team had been intact for at least five years and working well together. These were all the conditions that were required to get into the public markets. Nike go out and be a public company doing 15, 20, 25 million in revenue, but you had to have these conditions in place. 
This broke all the rules. So what they did is they were going to offer for 12 to 14. That morning it opened at 28. That day it closed at 75. The company is worth $3 billion just over a year after formation. This was unprecedented in the history of venture capital, this kind of wealth generation in this very short period of time. And this became the new playbook called Get Big Fast. I worked for the gentleman who invented this playbook. His name is John Doerr. He hired me when I was at Stanford Business School, and I became his student under this playbook, which we helped with Amazon and Google, AutoTrader, and others. But I became very good at understanding how to do this well. Something happened then a bit later in the venture capital industry and had nothing to do with venture capitalists. It had to do with the Fed. The Fed decided to give the venture capital industry a gigantic gift. They decided to lower interest rates. For 40 years, we've been lowering interest rates, and then they took them to zero. And this was really tied with the Great Recession. But we've had a very long period of near zero interest rates. So what happens when you do that? Well, investors, whether it be endowments or foundations, or wealthy individuals, or individuals, they have to start looking to take more risks to earn, a, earn their target return. So if your fixed income portfolio, which was 40% of your overall portfolio, just went to near zero, you're going to have to go out further on the risk curve to try to balance the overall return and hit something that will satisfy your investors, your, whether it be a pension fund endowment or whatnot. So you'll see the response to the venture capital industry to these interest rates being lowered. So $35 billion was raised in 2010. If you go all the way over here, you've got $250 billion that was raised last year. These are remarkable numbers of capital being raised as people shifted their investments into venture capital. I want to highlight something for you. That little red box? That's the amount of venture capital that was raised by the entire VC industry in its first 40 years. It was just $25 billion. That $25 billion backed these companies, Fairchild, FedEx, Cisco, Intel, Microsoft, Sun, Starbucks, Adobe. There's thousands of companies who were backed during this period. But this was done with less than $25 billion of venture capital. And remarkably, that's about $1.6 trillion of revenue just on the logos of the companies that are independent today there. $25 billion, $1.6 trillion. That's an incredible investment. I'd say this is when venture capital was truly exceptional and doing an amazing job. If we look on this side, there is one firm that raised over $30 billion of capital. One firm in the last decade. $25 billion for the entire industry for 40 years, all these wonderful companies. Do you guys know what firm this is? Let me have a guess. Some say Uber? It's Uber. Uber. And Uber, $8 billion in revenues and lost $300 million last year. Look at this. $1.6 trillion, $8 billion. Now, they had a little more time, but do you think this is going to become $1.6 trillion someday? Revenues, that's never going to happen. That's a very sloppy model of venture capital. And by the way, that backing destroyed dozens and dozens and dozens of family businesses because they were able to underprice the market, go out and grab market share, and there was regionals all over the country that were family-owned businesses that were wiped out by this behavior so that they could lose $300 million last year. <clears throat> So here's a little secret. So I talked about the $25 billion. 
Let's talk about capital efficiency. Bill Gates did not need venture capital. He was already profitable. He sold 5% of the company for $1 million for one purpose only. It was to get Dave Marquardt on the board of directors. He wanted Dave's mentorship. Dave would not do it unless he owned a piece of the company. So this is the deal they cut. He did not need the money. Larry and Sergey, I helped negotiate this investment when I was at Kleiner Perkins. I took the lead on behalf of John Doerr. 25%. Why was it 25%? It's because Larry and Sergey wanted it to be as low as possible. John Doerr historically would make no investments less than 20%. So John gave me permission to go down to 12.5%, but no lower, and he really wanted 15%. Mike Moritz on the other side was not going to have a percent less than John Doerr. They're very competitive, as you may know. So whatever John got, Mike was going to get. So John eventually agreed to 12.5%. Mike agreed to 12.5%, 25%. That's how we set the percentage. It had nothing to do with the company and its performance. And the $25 million was just roughly what Larry and Sergey kind of thought the company was worth. But they actually were generating revenues already because they were selling search boxes, you know, literally boxes that would go into enterprises for search. But again, the most important thing they were doing was seeking John and uh, Mike's advice and counsel on the board. It was less about the money, less about the percentage. And then remarkably, most people don't know this because they think of Amazon being such a capital hog. But uh, Amazon only raised $9 million of equity before it went public. $9 million. Now it raised $50 million in the public offering. And then it turned around about four years later and raised a billion dollars of zero-coupon debt in Europe in 1999. But the equity portion of this was very small. So if you look at this, you could kind of argue we're looking at about, what, $35 million required from venture capitalists to support these companies. Each of these companies are worth over a trillion dollars, a trillion dollar valuation on those three companies. So look at you know, the amount of capital going back. We raised $250 billion for the entire industry, and three of the best ever required barely any capital at all. So again, something dramatically changed when Netscape went public. And then a little bit of the dark side of this model, I experienced this myself. Uh, I ran a company called Good Technology. I raised uh, about $160 million. I started off with money from Benchmark and Kleiner. This was after I had my job at Kleiner Perkins. And this get big fast with the, all this money coming in switched to a new playbook called Growth at All Costs. You probably have heard about that. But when you have that much money, and I'm a dry powder as venture capitalist, you just press the money in and do whatever you got to do, just grow the top line. And the markets were rewarding this. But the downside of this is you're always overworked and always on. There's constant pressure to achieve more and more. I remember when we'd hit milestones, and be like, hey, that's great. You're a little bit early. Let's raise the bar again. So it's just this unending pressure to keep achieving. Significant time, energy, and stress in managing the board. You spend a lot of time recruiting. If you're growing a company at 100% a year, you're doubling your workforce about 100% a year. That's a lot of recruiting. You spend significant time raising money. As Dave Strom said to me, companies today are being built to raise cash, not to generate cash. We're building companies to raise cash, not generating cash. And then every time we have a new set of investors, they have new ideas on strategies. So you start trying to modify your strategies to make sure you can appease your new investors who have a lot of influence on the board because they wrote the last check. If you miss any milestones, I learned this from my peers, fire somebody before the board meeting. Figure out somebody on the executive team and fire them because you have to blame them. Otherwise, they're going to end up firing you. So it's just this, like, who goes first? Well, boom, you're gone. I'm safe. 
<clears throat> emotional layoffs due to overhiring. We always overhire, so there's always these. The first time a founder has to do layoffs, they're crying and they can't keep themselves together, but it's just part of what happens. They're, they're better the second time. Uh, you break promises to customers, you break promises to suppliers, you break promises to partners. You don't mean to do this, but you're making all your promises to the investors. That's what matters. You have to achieve the promises you made to the investors, even if it means breaking these promises. And then, uh, unfortunately, most, in most cases, nine out of ten times, the employees make no money from this when the company's ultimately sold. And it's a longer conversation about preferences and deal structures and all that. But it's very surprising to a lot of employees when a company gets sold, they're like, well, where's my piece? And like, well, there's none left because the investors took all of it out based on their preferences. Private equity, let's move to that. Similar type of beneficiary of these very, very low rates from the Fed. So you can see, again, that march up of capital raised. But the numbers are bigger. That's almost $500 billion raised in 2022. The difference with private equity and venture capital is the private equity guys use debt on top of the equity, typically at least two to one. So sitting on top of that 500 million is another trillion dollars of debt. So every year for about the past 10 years roughly, they've been raising somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 trillion dollars of buying capacity, buying capacity to go buy these companies out in the market. And uh, this is a more detailed chart, which I got. And then I was trying to get this updated. And PitchBook was the only people that could really help me get the most accurate numbers. And I could only get it for this year. But private equity is just eating up America. Software is not eating America. Private equity is actually what's eating America. 11,200 companies owned by private equity this year. And we did some rough math on this in research. We think it now represents 10% of all employees in the private sector work for private equity uh, or uh, work for private equity. And many of them don't even know it. They don't even know they're working for a private equity firm. So you kind of wonder, how does, uh, how does an entrepreneur get convinced or owner of a multi-generational family business get convinced? to sell their company to these private equity firms, because you do hear these stories. You hear some bad stories. So here's what they generally say, and I'll give you the good kind of kind cop versus the bad cop version of this. And it's this, this, this one. We're, we're experts. We have this huge network of company builders. We know politicians. We've got great banking relationships. We know all the major service providers, and we'll work together to make your business hugely successful. You did this. We're going to take it to the next level. So we'll do that together. We'll take it to the next level. And we make a commitment to your company, and you are in good hands. Trust us, you're in good hands. And then lastly, you know, let's think about what this really means. You're going to get wonderful diversification for yourself and your family. You've had all of your assets in one company. And that's so risky. Look what happened with COVID. Now, if you sell your company, you have all this cash. We'll help you, of course, invest that cash. But what you can really do is you can do a lot of really nice charitable charitable work with all those riches. And by the way, you can get your plane and your boat and all that stuff too if you want. If this works, that's great. If it doesn't work, they kind of flip the pop up, the horns, and they say either you got to be big, a part of a much bigger company, or you'll be crushed. And we own that big company and we will crush you if you don't sell yourselves to us. They'll say something like this, it'll be an alternative, which is the world's changing, every industry is being disrupted, you don't have to be an expert in strategic and digital transformations. I mean, you have to be an expert in strategic and digital transformations, you have to be an expert in AI. Are you guys experts in AI? If you're not, we do, we have that expertise, and we can take care of the company, because otherwise you're gonna fall behind. 
And then lastly, if you don't have a deep-pocketed partner, you can't win. So maybe you're not going to get crushed, but you're just not going to do very well. You're going to flounder unless you have a lot more money. So this is a good case study because most of this information is public. 3G bought Anheuser-Busch back in 2008. And this is kind of the playbook they played. And it's roughly the playbook for most private equity firms when they do acquisitions. So the first thing is they just borrowed a lot of money. They leveraged the heck out of this company. Four and a half net debt to EBITDA uh, by the end of 2018 in the year they closed that deal. They raised prices immediately. And then they actually started leaning on their suppliers. This is a massive firm. They started leaning on their suppliers saying, we're not paying you in 90 days. We're going to pay you in 180 days. And if you don't like it, you're out. We'll find somebody else. They went to zero-based budgeting to force justification of every dollar spent. They cut the uh, corporate headquarters staff. They started laying off, and I know this from people in St. Louis, very tenured, high-level people. They're too expensive. And they actually replaced them with younger go-getters. Uh, and that's kind of their model, is find these young go-getters, we'll throw them in there, get rid of the expensive people, the people that have, frankly, a lot of the knowledge and the history. And then they downsized their real estate by two-thirds. They moved the headquarters from St. Louis, where it had been its entire existence, to New York. I mean, why does that make sense? They moved to flimsy packaging because they could save costs there. They got rid of a world-class IT group and moved to a really cheap outsource model. So let all those people go that were in the IT group. And then they cut their philanthropy from $38 million down to $16 million. And I think they cut it further after this. So those philanthropies that were counting on that $22 million, that was gone. Just acquisition closed. You're not getting the money anymore. But they did something really cool. They appealed to the millennials. They said, you can wear jeans. They never let that before. So that was the, the big give to the millennials. And that's, I couldn't get the Anheuser-Busch equivalent, but I did some research on this. In-N-Out Hamburger, which is a private evergreen company, versus Burger King, which at the time was owned by 3G, the same firm. They pay their managers on average $83,000 a year. Burger King paid at the time $38,000 a year. Lou, those digits are transposed, 38 and 83, just to show. Because you can't pay those managers much money and finance debt levels like that. There is not enough cash to pay your people well. So the next level, this I wanted to share with you because nobody talks about this. So this is really hard to get information about. In fact, Bloomberg just reached out to me today to have a conversation about this because they said, we heard you will talk about private equity. People are really, really cautious about talking about this. But this is a gentleman, of course, I didn't use his name, but he said, Dave, let me explain to you what it meant to be taken to the next level. He said it was this. He said the interference was significant. And just to set the context, it was a family-owned business. Private equity came in about 30% of the company. As part of it, they had an option to buy 100% of the company. At the beginning, when they bought 30%, nothing changed. Then they exercised their option, bought 100%, and he said it changed overnight. Literally, when they went to 100%, it changed overnight. He said the interference was significant from PE. This is after the 100% acquisition. When PE first came into the business, we justified them due to their bringing to bear needed structure, good governance, a real board. You know, that expertise I talked about a moment ago. He, but, he said, but everything beyond that was too much. Too many reports had to be generated for the PE firm, and way too much time was spent explaining monthly all the numbers to the PE firm. This took focus away from running the business. You and management start caring more about what the board members think than what customers' employees think. And when this happens, the company is in trouble. We would blame the weather, or we would blame other things for why the offices were not performing to their plan. After a while, you start believing your own lies to the board. It's self-preservation under the constant pressure. It's always someone else's fault. He said, toward the end, we were not doing the hard work of focusing on the business as a people business, but instead focusing on the business as spreadsheets, 
reports and explanations. And I hear this over and over and over again. That promise of the next level turns out to be an experience more like this. And Warren Buffett, you probably know the very famous investor, he looked at this closely decades ago and talks about this every year, every other year. And he basically says, if because you know of the leverage that's used by the private equity firms to buy these companies, he said, if you take the unlevered returns of common stocks, say you're just buying the S&P 500 in the public market yourself, and compared it to the unlevered returns of alternative and PE, common wins. You would be better off just buying a portfolio of the S&P 500, the Vanguard VOO, if you want, and you'll do better. Now, what you have to do is you have to borrow a little bit of money to go alongside your equity to make the purchase, but you'll probably borrow with a lot less leverage than the private equity firms. But in the, the day, what it suggests, and this has been confirmed by other research, there is really no operational improvements ever made by private equity firms. As an industry, all the returns are driven by excess leverage, just taking more risk with other people's money. Are the PELPs listening to the most famous investor in the history of investing? No. They're still sitting on $1.5 trillion of dry powder, and more money is coming in now. Strangely enough, half of the money is coming from pension funds. So pension funds are underwriting the destruction of jobs in the private sector and not even realizing it. At least I don't believe they realize it. So in my mind, this tough P playbook will continue. We will be brought to all parts of the U.S. economy. I can tell you from the members of Tugboat Institute, we represent 25 different industries. They've entered every single industry, many of them in the last three to five years. Never saw private equity before. They're coming into every industry, and they're going to take this global also. And so in my mind, this is pretty sad because at the end of the day, the greatest beneficiary of all this is a very small number of people that own these private equity firms. Let's talk about public companies. So public has been declining, as you can see, and had a bit of a resurgence. So it kind of popped back up starting in 2018. It's about 8,300. Of that, about 1,200 are SPACs. So if you're familiar with the idea of SPACs, this is when you take a company public for $10 a share. It is a shell company. It has no assets outside of the cash, and then goes hunting to buy something. Almost all of the SPACs are now underwater. It's been a really bad move. So this is going to drop down a bit, but it is a little bit higher. And interesting, 33% of all non-farm business sector employees work for public companies. So 10% roughly, uh, these are slightly different metrics, but you can think of just less than half of all private sector employees working either for private equity or for public companies. And just like venture capital, just like private equity, public markets have been a tremendous beneficiary of these very low rates. Interesting enough, the holding period of public stocks has gone down dramatically. It used to be on average five years, and then the 80s it started dropping, and it kind of has a slow decline since then. But you're seeing it about 10 months now, which is weird, because on average that makes no sense. Because you get at 12 months, you'd have the benefit of long-term capital gains from a tax standpoint. So this is probably bimodal. We'll have to do more research on this, showing people trading very quickly or they're holding for at least a couple of years. But in all, in, on average, it's really shortened. And that's put pressure on public companies in a way people, I think, understand, but maybe not fully understand. This is probably the best example I can think of is Mark Benioff earlier this year. So he's been saying for two decades, our company is Ohana. Ohana is, is Hawaiian for family or sense of family. And he's just pounded this, Ohana, 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 that's who we are. Well, when Elliott Management stepped up and started leaning very hard on him, he laid off 8,000 people earlier this year. 8,000 people. You'd think 
He's losing money? Are they running out of cash? No. He made $7 billion in profits last year, and he has $14 billion on the balance sheet. So if you really believe in Ohana, tell Elliot to take a hike and continue to maintain your workforce. But he did this too. So if Mark Benioff will bend under the pressure of the public markets, nobody can survive the, the public markets as far as their purpose and their values and how they want to take care of their people. And here's another example. I think Starbucks is an extremely well-respected company. And we had the benefit of having the number two from Starbucks come to a Tugboat Institute event many years ago. And we talked about the famous quarter where Starbucks was going to miss the quarter by a penny. It was going to be the first time in the history of Starbucks as a public, public company to miss its quarter by just one penny. The purpose of this company is to be known for nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. That's a pretty noble purpose. This is a quote from the number two, Howard Bihar, about this quarter. He said, we're going to miss the quarter. Uh, and we realized in the third month of the quarter. That's pretty late to realize you're going to miss. He said, we cut the hours of the assistant managers. These are people that need to make a living. And that really broke trust. It took us years to get it back, all in the attempt to make a penny. He said, we could have cut the officer's bonuses, but Howard Schultz didn't want to cut the officer's bonuses. He'd rather cut this level. So again, a very well-respected, deeply purposeful company under the pressure of the public markets did this at least five years of cultural damage. I think Mark did at least 10 years of cultural damage. Interesting, I asked Howard, I said, Howard, this had been an evergreen company, a private company, closely held. How do you think this would have played out? He laughed. He said there would never have been a conversation. What private company that's closely held would ever sacrifice its culture over a penny a share? It would be an irrelevant question to even ask. So let's talk about the ownership uh, planning horizons because you can start seeing this matters a lot. For the public company, as long as it's doing reasonably well, the ownership horizon is about 10 months. These are each of quarters. If it's not going well, as you can see from both Salesforce and Starbucks, your time frame collapses. You're down to a quarter. Whatever it takes to make the quarter, that's your planning horizon. PE-back companies are planning horizon, they will argue, or at least the ownership horizon is three to five years. If things are going well, they're generally staying in touch, quarterly meetings. If things are not going well, the pressure we talked about about going to the next level, it collapses down to 30 days. That management team has 30 days of breathing room to fix things before they're going to be all over them, including parachuting replacement executives to take over that firm if they don't adjust what's happening. And then venture capital is a roughly a seven to 10 year time horizon for the first time it raises a large institutional round. But the real planning horizon is whatever it takes to raise the next round of financing. So you're just, what does it take to make sure you're well positioned to raise that next round of financing? That's typically two years. So look at these tiny, tiny planning horizons. When you think of the span of the human experience, we're making decisions based on this. And then don't think for a second there isn't a huge ecosystem that benefits from all of this. That's why this is so powerful. The investment bankers, the law firms, the valuation firms, the strategy consulting firms, the accounting firms, the recruiters, luxury good providers, private wealth, they all enjoy the benefits of these models, these built-to-flip models. It's very lucrative for their businesses, too. They will not make a fraction as much money off an evergreen company as they do a venture-backed company because they make very big money associated with financing and large M&A deals. So back to this 51%. This is a more recent study. Uh, it's actually Carol Dodery talked about this from the Pew Research Center. She said, you know, it's interesting. She recognizes the 51%, numbers close to that. But she says, but the data suggests that the millennials are not actually clamoring for socialism. 
So while they're frustrated with capitalism, maybe they don't support capitalism, they're actually not trying to run to socialism. I think that's actually something to be optimistic about. He says what they want is an economy that works better and more fairly for them. Feels like a reasonable thing to ask for. So I want to talk about evergreen companies. I think I've hopefully set the, the table for what's happening with venture capital, private equity, and in the public markets. So back to my question that I asked, you know, want to build something significant, but no plans to exit or uh, by sale or going public. And so this learning journey had me talk to a lot of very interesting people. That's Jessica Heron, the woman that said, I like, I like you and your partners, but I hate your model. She's talking to Pat O'Day. He was the CEO of Pete's Coffee. Interesting enough, Pat sold the company to a family business in Europe to get it out of the public markets because he couldn't operate it with enough strategic flexibility while it was a public company. That's Mac Harmon and Chuck Holloway, one of my, uh, uh, one of my advisors. Mac actually built an artificial Christmas tree in the heart of Silicon Valley. He's a Stanford graduate. It's uh, privately owned, very successful, high-growth company. And so you don't have to go cut down a Christmas tree every year. You can buy one of his, and it'll last about 20 years for you, 25 years. That's Jed York of the 49ers. Jed talked to me a lot about multi-generational family businesses. His, his grandfather bought the 49ers. Uh, his father attempted to run it, not very successfully, and then Jed took it over, and he made a real commitment to like trying to get it back to a winning tradition. But so much of it is about honoring his grandfather and the importance of making sure that legacy carries forward. And that's Amy Christensen and her father, uh, the late Clayton Christensen, who I spent a lot of time with very early. And Clayton made it very clear to me. He said, venture capitalists are screwing up. They've got so much money that they're no longer backing companies in a way that lead to market disruptive companies. He said, because most market disruptive companies have to start slow, refine their technology, go into a small niche market to mature their technology before going into mainstream markets. And the venture capitalists are forcing all the entrepreneurs into large mainstream markets far too early. So he said, it's broken. And then this is Roberta Katz, who's here with us today. Roberta, I had the pleasure of meeting through Burt McMurtry. Um, and uh, Roberta was seeing similarly what I was seeing back in 2012 around Silicon Valley. We had a real meeting in the minds about some of the disappointments and disillusionment, whether it was happening both in the entrepreneurial community and also she said, kind of look at the broader business community too, Dave. We're kind of, we're letting people down by the way we're doing business today. She's been an advisor ever since. So after I met about 40 of them, I heard over and over again, are you talking to people that are talking the way I'm talking? Because I don't know anybody talking the way I'm talking, and I would love to talk to them too. So I started making one-on-one -on -one introductions and I realized this isn't working too well. So I just said, look, I'm going to invite you all up to Sun Valley, Idaho. I'm going to put on a two-day event. We're going to share a lot of ideas, do some outdoor activities together, and do some celebrating, and we'll just see where it goes. And so we did this in October 2013, and within the first 24 hours, I said, I know what I'm going to do next. I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to figure out a way to support these evergreen entrepreneurs because what they're doing is really important. And at that point, the idea of continuing to raise a venture capital firm was complete, or another fund was completely off the table. And I did a lot of research too. I was talking to a lot of people doing a lot of research because I was trying to get my head around this. And you guys probably know this very famous quote from Milton Freeman. This was the New York Times article he published it in. The social responsibility of business is to increase profits. He still brought up regularly people arguing about what is the social responsibility of businesses. And I'm not going to talk about that because that's a whole talk. But it's relevant really for public companies because he had a footnote in here that most people have missed. 
He said the situation of the individual proprietor is somewhat different. If he acts to reduce the returns of his enterprise in order to exercise his social responsibility, he's spending his own money. Not someone else's. He can do as he wishes. And if he wishes to spend his money on such purposes, that is his right. And I cannot see that there is any objection to his doing so. He's talking about evergreen companies. That's what that is the equivalent of. They can make their own decisions, use their resources as they choose to, because they do not have a responsibility to distant public investors. So what I learned in this learning journey was a few things. First, some time ago, this could have been 10 years ago, it could have been 150 years ago, the founders and owners made a really important decision. They said, we're not going to pursue society's current definition of success. We're not going to do that. We're not going public. We're not going to be sold. We're going to do the right thing in building a business to, to their own values, and it's not going to be a vehicle to enrich themselves at the expense of others. Very importantly, they're not doing this just to make money for themselves. And they're committed to excellence, longevity, dynamism, a deeper relationship with human beings. I'm going to talk more about this. Growth from one's own fuel. They're not looking for somebody else to fund their companies. And shared success, broadly shared success with everyone involved. And interestingly enough, and this was stunning to me, they were thinking beyond their own lifetimes. Rarely people think beyond their lifetimes. They're like, you know, after I'm gone, this is what I expect. Here's how I'd like the company to be run. Here's who I'd like to have owned this company. And then as I was having these conversations, people started saying, particularly a gentleman, Chris Alden, said to me, he said, look, this term evergreen is pretty cool, and people are gravitating toward it. It's got good natural connotations to it. It feels noble. feels enduring. feels like it grows steady and slowly. But we better put a more clear framework around this. Otherwise, somebody's either going to steal the name and start using it themselves like a private equity firm, God forbid, or people won't know what you're really saying. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this, what I'd heard in that gathering, what I've read, my own career experiences, leaning on people like Jim Collins, Tom Peters, and others, uh, Dave and Bill, and Hewitt Packard. They came up with these seven Ps, purpose, perseverance, people first, private profit, pace growth, and pragmatic innovation. And this is a straw man. I learned this at Bain & Company. I thought it was a reasonably good idea, so I said, let's put it out to the community and say, take a shot at this thing. Stab it. Punch it, tear it apart. Let's see if we can make this better. Interesting enough, it's still the seven Ps. It's lasted 10 years and it has never, ever been softened. And I'll, you'll, hopefully you'll see this as being pretty remarkable given the number of people now in our group. So I'm going to explain each of these because we have a slightly different definition that you might get out of Webster's. So purpose is having a compelling reason for existing. It's a north star above all else. And we've got a whole variety of purposes, and we don't judge those purposes. They just have to be meaningful, and it can't be about generating wealth. If it's about generating its wealth, that's the purpose of the company, you're not an evergreen company. The, the wealth creation is just a byproduct of achieving your purpose. And we don't care if you get wealthy or not. You know, if you have, you've, done, you've contributed something significant, but it wasn't the reason why you created and led that company. Perseverance is knowing that if you can be around for the, a very long time, you're going to go through a lot. Look at the companies that with the last 100 years, what they've had to go through. And we know the next 100 years will be just as challenging. So you've got to be prepared. Part of this is you keep your debt very low. The exact opposite of private equity. Most evergreen companies have no debt at all. Zero. I've had stories people tell me like, back in 1858 when we had the Great Recession, you know, we lost the family business and promised we'd never do this again. So it's actually written in our bylaws. We can never take debt. And these are just tremendous examples. People first, it, it, at its core, this is really about the idea 
that if you take care of your people, they'll take care of your customers, they'll take care of your suppliers, they'll take care of uh, your partners, your owners, your communities, and very importantly, they'll take care of their families. And private is taking advantage of the fact you are private, have differentiated strategies because of this. You can operate in ways you can as a public company, like Pete's. You know, Pat O'Day did not have the flexibility to do strategic actions the way he'd like to. The reason why, he knew it would drive down the stock price and Howard Schultz would buy the company. So he had to like, literally do things very carefully. Profit, you know, this is a strange one in Silicon Valley because people hate profit in Silicon Valley, but we actually think it's critical because it's essential to survival and independence. And frankly, it's the best measure of customer value delivered. If the total cost of delivery is here and you can price it here, it means customers value what you do above what it takes you to organize yourself to deliver those things. It's a good thing. And those profits are what allow you to grow the business, have profit sharing with the employees, reward the owners, buy companies. There's a variety of good things you can do with profits. Pace growth, in its essence, is the idea, don't grow so slow that your best people live, uh, leave, but don't grow so fast. <laughs> yeah. Don't grow so fast that you actually outstrip your cash resources and your culture. It's very important. And then pragmatic innovation. If you're going to be around for 100 years, you're going to have to do different products and services in the future. You're going to have to continuously improve. You're going to have to also invent. So that's the Evergreen 7 Ps, and it's really held up well with this community. And I wanted to share, when I first got started with this, I could find very few people who could make introductions to these type of companies. Then I started meeting gentlemen like this. This is Jim Goodnight. The $3 billion... You think, is that company valuation? I mean, in Silicon Valley, we talk about unicorns. Is it worth a billion, two billion, three billion? No, I meet this guy, three billion in revenues. And I'm like, whoa, that's a pretty big company. That's, that's real value. That's not you know, like paper value. Um, this gentleman, Jack Stack, is in the Midwest. He spun his company out of International Harvester, about to shut it down and close down 300 jobs. Took it, turned it around, and then gave over the ownership to the employees. The employees own 100% of this company, very successful company. And I met this gentleman, Val Hollingsworth. His company is 295 years old. I'd never met somebody who ran a company that was 295 years old. Most of the companies I had met only survived three or four years if they're lucky in Silicon Valley. And then we saw people coming from all industries. You can see the biggest is construction. We have manufacturing, technology, consumer packaged goods, retail, restaurants, et cetera. But touches almost every major industry in the United States. We've got members from the United States, Canada, Mexico, we've had, uh, and the UK. Had them from Australia. COVID threw us back a little bit on international. Chile, uh, Switzerland, and Latvia. And I want to share just a few of these companies that are 100 years and older. You might recognize them or at least most of them. We've got 30 in our group now. And again, when I started, I had never even met a company that was 100 years old. So Radio Flyer, this is Robert Passon. His grandfather founded the company. They're in Chicago. This is a wonderful company. White Castle, this is Lisa Ingram. Lisa's great-grandfather founded this company about 30 years before McDonald's even existed or any of the other hamburger chains. Still the same sliders going way back then. And this is Edward Jones. That's Edward Jones himself. Penny Pennington is the sixth managing partner of the firm. This is a really wonderful evergreen company in the financial services area. And this is Hollingworth and Bose. This is the company that's 295 years old. That's Josh Ayer, who's the new CEO. And I like to tell this story because one of the first customers was Ben Franklin. They actually made paper products for Ben Franklin. Now they're the leading provider of filtration membranes 
They're in every Tesla on the road. They're in every SpaceX rocket. They're on every plane that's flying around the world right now. And so this company can say it had Ben Franklin's the customer and Elon Musk is the customer. Is that incredible? Two incredible inventors. So I thought you'd find this interesting. And so we ask these members as they come through our membership process, what do you think is the source of strategic advantage of your evergreen company? And we get a lot of answers, but most, the vast majority of the answers are this. Our strategic advantage is the long-term view. We can outlast anybody. We can outplan anybody. We can outsurvive anybody. So if you go back to this, remember these planning horizons, quarterly, monthly, and every couple of years, let's layer in the planning horizons of an evergreen company. And this is going to be tied also with the ownership horizons. We have companies that talk about 100 years. I am planning for the next 100 years of this company. And they easily operate in 10-year planning horizons. They're very comfortable in 10-year, 20-year, 30-year planning horizons. Again, you just don't hear about these things. And you probably say, well, that's naive because things are too dynamic. You can't plan out that far in advance. Well, you can if you're thinking about factories and forests and farms, or you're thinking about your culture and you want that company to be. And I want to share three key observations that I've gained from them. I've got many observations. I mean, I did not invent this, let's be clear. I'm just trying to understand and evangelize this. First is compounding. This is 30 years. And so think about what compounds. Simple interest is that blue line. This is compounding interest. This is being done at 15%, a 15% rate. So as you can see, at 30 years, whatever this curve is, it gets really big. Well, if you talk to Warren Buffett, he'll say, that's capital. That's the core of my entire strategy, is I hold these companies forever. They have this compounding interest. These companies get very big over time. 15%. By venture capital standards, you're fired. I would have to fire you if you grew your company at 50%. That's a failing enterprise at 15%. You gotta be at 50%, 60%, 100%. You've probably heard of the rule of 40. Either your losses and your growth rates have to total up to 40%. Kind of nonsense metrics like that. But this would, you would be fired. You wouldn't survive three years in this company. But this, over a long period of time, leads to something very big. But other things compound besides capital. I knew this before I met these evergreen CEOs. I didn't know culture compounds. Culture compounds over time. It can get stronger and stronger. Relationships can compound, particularly with partners, like suppliers, like long-term customers. These compound over time. Innovations and know-how and intellectual property, they compound. You get better at this. Most companies that are large and successful have very complex systems. Those systems have to improve continuously. Time gives them the chance to improve and make those systems better. Operational efficiency and scalability compounds. And really interestingly, a company reputation does, and brand. If you do something really well for a long period of time, people start really valuing your company. So 30 years of doing something, keeping your promises, not breaking promises, and delivering over and over again for your employees, for your customers, for your partners, for your communities, you'll build a very strong brand. Second thing I learned, these these leaders do not play zero-sum games. They don't play by definition because there's no expiration date and they're not looking to beat their customers or beat their employees or beat their suppliers. They're looking to actually have long-term relationships with them. They want win-wins. So they're striving continuously for how do we make sure we all win together? 
because you're not trying to leave people behind if you're not trying to exit in the short term. And that gets to the third point. Back to VC and private equity, they can be forced into, the leadership teams can be forced into very tough trade-offs. As you heard with Starbucks, as you heard with um, Salesforce.com, and particularly when a company is being dressed up for sale by the private equity firms. As you're starting that process, you start cutting all long-term projects, you start cutting compensation, you start really leaning on the employees, you start working longer hours because you want to get maximum cash generation going into the exit. And it's usually not sustainable. And then third, and this is the part that has actually been pretty amazing to me because Hewitt Packer was a pretty special place and there was a lot of affinity for Dave and Bill. But this gentleman, Jeet Kumar, kind of blew all of us away. He was on the stage a couple of years ago at one of our summits. He uh, came from India penniless, worked at Hewitt Packard in the printer division in Boise and then started his own very successful tech company. And he said, what is life all about? This is to his employees. He said, it's being the source of love and leadership. And he just said, I love you. I love you people who have decided to commit your lives to helping me build a wonderful company so it can be of service. You don't hear that too often. And then I was driving down to Panda Express a year ago, and I saw this sculpture. And I thought, oh, that's a really beautiful sculpture. So I took a picture of it. I didn't really think too much about it, except for it's just kind of a pretty, um, pretty sculpture. And then I heard Peggy earlier this year, they were celebrating the anniversary of Panda Express. And she said, why do we do this? And she said, we do it out of love. We do it out of love. That's why we do what we do, is out of love. I find this remarkable that these evergreen companies and these leaders are so comfortable talking about love. I mean, talk about setting a very high expectation for how you're going to engage with the people that you work with and the people that you serve. So you asked me to talk about the challenges, too. So there are challenges. You know, this is not a flawless model. The first challenge is this. It's perception. Nobody even knows about these evergreen companies. They're, they're largely overlooked. And this was my personal experience, and it was this, Inc. Magazine. Do you guys recognize her? Now, I think she's in jail now, right? So we were supposed to be on the front cover Jessica Heron and I celebrating this idea of evergreen companies. This is 2015, written by Bo Burlingham. At the last minute, the editors of the magazine said, you know what, they're off, that's boring. We're gonna put Elizabeth Holmes on the front cover. She's exciting, she's gonna be a billionaire, she's the next Steve Jobs, she's amazing. And so they stuck us up in the top corner, how to build a company to last 100 years. And it's a wonderful article. I think you'd enjoy reading it if you wanted to find it online. But it just highlighted for me this bright, shiny object behavior by so many people um, around the built-to-flip companies versus Evergreen. And she's the worst, of course, of the worst of the built-to-flip. So the other challenge is, besides being unappreciated, access to capital is extremely difficult. Even if you go to large, multi-generational family businesses and ask them, will you invest in an Evergreen company, the answer is uh, usually no. And they say, what we need is we need an exit. So the companies may even have, pop back up. the companies even have what you might call permanent capital are very rarely uh, willing to make that permanent capital available to other entrepreneurs. And I think that's a real loss. Uh, competing in winner-take-all markets can be very difficult if access to capital can win. 
for example, there was no evergreen company that was going to beat Uber. Nobody can compete with $30 billion being raised. And as I said earlier, just devastated many, many regional businesses because they were able to underprice them. And then for the founder, they have to do something really tricky. They have to build a wonderful business, and then they have to plan for the succession of the business past their lifetimes, ownership, management, and control succession. And if not done properly, they can find themselves in a situation where their taxes are really detrimental to them. Am I, how am I doing on time? Okay. Okay. Um, and keeping owner harmony and alignment over generations is really tricky. Most of these companies do not fail for lack of strategy or execution. They fail because the family no longer gets along. So you have to have strategies to keep families in harmony. And it's got tremendous advantages, so I want to highlight this. You can win in almost every market. The tortoise can beat the hare in almost every market. Um, the compounding leads to very large companies. They're very capital efficient. These companies look more like the Microsofts and the Googles that I talked about earlier than they look like the things that we see in the last 10 years. They use capital very wisely. And they continue discovering new ways to grow. You know, the company that's serving paper products to Ben Franklin, now serving Tesla and SpaceX. And they've got tremendous advantages besides just the long-term view. And this is really tied with the fact that the owners and the management teams are so closely together, they can move very fast. They can make quick decisions. They can be very flexible. They can make sacrifices that public companies can never make. They'll make sacrifices that venture capital and PE-backed companies would never make because they care about the long haul. And then lastly, these values are enduring, and they lead to better outcomes, and back to safety and security, better security, higher security for employees, suppliers, customers, investors, families, and communities, because they're not going away. They're not doing irrational things. They're being built for the very long haul. So back to the 51%, back to the millennials clamoring for something more. Evergreen companies may be what they're seeking. We just need to make them more aware of it. I think they would really, really benefit from understanding the opportunities around evergreen companies. And there's something else I want to share with you, too. I think there's a real untapped opportunity around this idea of evergreen companies. And back to Jerry Muller, formal or informal barriers to equality of opportunity, for example, have historically blocked various sectors of the population. They've blocked women, minorities, and the poor from benefiting fully from all capitalism has to offer. He goes on to say, but over time, in the advanced capitalist world, those barriers gradually have been lowered or removed so that now opportunity is more equally available than ever before. The inequality that exists today, therefore, derives less from the unequal availability of opportunity than it does from the unequal ability to exploit opportunity. And what I want to share with you is this model of built to flip is theoretically open to all. In fact, it's very, very narrow. Due to homophilia, education, skills, access to resources, the capital networks themselves. And it's actually understandable because these companies have to move so fast, they have to execute so perfectly, they don't have time to allow people to develop into those roles. So it's extremely difficult within this context to solve this problem, just because of how fast they have to move and the stakes that are involved. So I'd like to argue this is not the answer. A lot of people think the answer is venture capital should be spread around more, should be given to some of these different groups. I think the answer is this. It's for us to encourage people to follow the evergreen path. 
There is no gatekeepers of the Evergreen Path. You don't have to go to Silicon Valley. You don't have to try to network to angel investors and figure out how you're going to stack your financings. All you have to do is have the ambition, creativity, resourcefulness, patience, grit, and courage to serve others and serve them well. That's the key to being an evergreen company. And Andy Taylor said this. He was the second CEO of Enterprise Holdings. His father, Jack, was the founder. He said, take care of your employees. Take care of your customers, and the profits will follow. And Clayton Christensen, and I think this is the secrets of our playbook, he said, be impatient for profits, patient for growth. And in being impatient for profits, get yourself to profitable, sustainable action, and then grow from there at whatever rate you can. You're not going to go away, and the board's not going to fire you because there is no board. It is your company. So this is the last slide. This was a, uh, a professor at Stanford Business School who's extremely well-respected. He's a dear friend. He's been there for four or five decades. And when I was early in my learning journey on this evergreen company journey, he said, this is pretty interesting, Dave. And he said, you're fairly animated about this. And I can tell you you're pretty excited. He goes, but I want to remind you of something. And this will forever be this way. He said, the greatest calling of a company is to be a public company. It was in the past and it will be in the future. It is the greatest calling of a company. And I've thought about that a lot since then. It's almost been 10 years, and I've met over 300 of these leaders, and I've seen how they behave and what they do over long periods of time. They're very remarkable leaders and very remarkable companies. And as you can imagine, I don't believe that. I believe the greatest calling of a company is to be an evergreen company. And that really is capitalism at its best. Thank you very much. Stay up here. Um, I'll put you center stage right now because we have an opportunity for asking questions. Thanks, first of all, for all the insights, but also the passion and the inspiration and certainly the provocation on this campus as well. So, wonderful. We now have an ability to ask questions. And what I'd like to request is that we've got mics here on either side so we can start moving to that side. Gentlemen in the back, please um, come to the mic over here. And if you'd like, if there are others, we can also put you uh, on the side. So you take center stage. I'm just here to moderate. <laughs> yeah, hi. Thanks. I'd like to ask a question about, so you, you've mentioned this a bit in the disadvantages or like the challenges the companies are facing. Uh, one of them is like, let's say, innovation or like disruption, right? Um, how have you noticed any patterns of how these companies, the evergreen companies, are like encouraging their own internal innovation? or entrepreneurship or something like that, thanks. Within their firms? Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting, the companies that do this really well just kind of talk about it as being part of the DNA of the business. That we got, in, for example, you know, we started with this innovation. This is how the company began 150 years ago. And they remind the team regularly that we have to continuously improve. They'll just hammer it and we have to improve, we have to improve, otherwise we won't be relevant. And they also encourage risk-taking and invention. But they generally try to do it in a very affordable way. Uh, Jim Goodnight, who I showed earlier, I talked about, you know, it's not $3 billion in valuation, it's $3 billion in revenue. I spent, uh, with 20 CEOs, we spent two days with them. We spent one day talking about people first and how they took care of the people because they're ranked in the top five best places to work for 12 years in a row. And then second, I said, uh, let's talk about innovation. And it was really interesting because this was kind of blew my mind. He starts talking about you know, this product line and that product line and this service. I said, wait, wait, slow down. When do you write the check? I mean, just talk about how you fund innovation. And he said, 
what check are you talking about? And I said, well, at some point, you know, some great executive or engineer comes up with an idea, I guess they probably present it to some group of people, and then you guys write a check, like two or three million dollars, and maybe give them more money afterwards. And he said, no, no, we don't write a check. I said, how can you do three billion in revenue and be this innovative, and you don't like fund these projects? He goes, no, no, the way it works in our firm, the executive or the engineer has to go to other members in other departments and actually borrow resources. So they have to create a business plan not to convince me to fund it. They have to create a business plan to convince their colleagues to give them resources out of their budget to fund it. And that's how they do it. And I say, okay, that's cool. So they get it going. They're making a couple million in revenue. It's got some promise. Now you write the big check, right? And he goes, no, no. He goes, they're growing from their own profits at that point. And I'm like, okay, we're not understanding each other, Jim. And I turned to the CFO and I said, Don Parker, you know what I'm talking about, right? At some point, you guys are writing the big check, right, to fund these innovations. And he goes, I'm not sure the confusion, Dave. I've never written a check. I don't write those <laughs> checks. Jim won't let me. And I'm like, so that is a form of innovation, you know, to have a company that's $3 billion in revenue that doesn't really have a venture type of model inside. So to your question, I think it's largely just making sure the team understands that we have to continue innovating and being creative. The other thing it does, it requires a high level of trust and safety. And that's another thing that happens in these companies because they're uh, – their understanding is that we care about you as employees. If I'm asking you to innovate and invent, and it doesn't work, but you use good process and with integrity, it's just like Silicon Valley. You'll get another shot at it. You don't get fired for that. Other questions? Please. Thank you for your fascinating presentation. I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, I didn't know that ever, evergreen companies, sorry, I'm coming from Europe and I, I wasn't ever aware of that. I would like to ask you about the aspect of uh, sustainability towards nature, mm -hmm. climate change. I believe that uh, millennials, uh, apart from that, that they maybe not believe they want to live in, the better, in, better, in better company, they want to work for the better economy, they also want to have a sustainable future. And what uh, is, I'm a little bit missing uh, in the name of the evergreen, also the contact and then the concept of the sustainability in this context. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks for asking. That's, that's a great question. So there are some companies that in their purpose statement um, itself, which I said we don't actually kind of judge your purpose statement as long as we feel it's meaningful and you're aligned with it. There's a number of members that actually something related to the environment and kind of how they think about sustainability and environmental conditions is part of the purpose. Most don't. Most don't have that in their purpose statement. But it's pretty fundamental because when I talked to these CEOs about it, they said, look, if we're going to be around for 100 years, we of course cannot waste. We have, of course have to be concerned about kind of how we think about resources. And so it's just kind of how they're wired. They don't need to wave a separate flag. They're like, of course we care about it. So here's a great example. Do you guys know what the most successful recycling program in the United States is? Do you think it's maybe aluminum cans? What is it? No? It's uh, lead-acid batteries. It's the most successful uh, recycling campaign in the United States. 99.5% of, of all lead-acid batteries get returned to a place in Pennsylvania. And it was because the founder of the company, East Penn, in 1970 said, I don't want to see this stuff going into landfill. This is toxic stuff. There was no EPA at this time. There was no regulations about it. He just felt if this company is going to be around for another 100 years, we cannot be putting into the ground these batteries. So he created the most elaborate in the United States return mechanism. And he takes batteries back from people who are not 
customers of them. They take them all back, and they take care of that very toxic battery so it doesn't actually get into the environment. So that, to me, is just a great example of an evergreen company. You know, they cared so much they didn't need the government to tell them to do it. They just said, look, this is an important product. You need it in every car, every tractor, every boat. They all need a lead-acid battery for starting outside of the EVs today. EVs still have them. Do you guys know that? They still have lead-acid batteries in them for running their most important core systems in case the EV batteries themselves go down. So they're even in those cars. But uh, I think that's just a good example of people really caring. You know, and I look at, like, Lego. I don't know if you saw the announcement today. But they've been trying very – I consider them to be an evergreen company. They've been trying very, very hard to replace that plastic. And they actually went to recycled plastic. And then they announced today, we can't do it. We found that using recycled plastic actually uses more energy and more material than just creating from new plastic. So they were honest. I mean, they could have done virtue signaling and just said, look, you know, we're using recycled plastic, even though it uses more energy and is more wasteful. But they said, no, we're going to keep looking. And they've tried starch and plant-based products, but they don't hold up like the, the plastic. But we'll keep working on it. You know, Patagonia is another company that I consider to be an evergreen company. I've talked to them. They're not members. But, of course, they're famous for how they think about sustainability. So if you can be around for 100 years, you're going to have to be responsible to, uh, let's call it concerns of your customers, concerns of your suppliers, and concerns of your community. Don, go ahead. And then, sir, you can also start coming up. So... Um, Many, many of us who are fans of capitalism nevertheless worry about the proper role of corporations in a democracy um, and the issue of regulatory capture in which companies are writing the rules uh, by which they live and the potentially corrosive effects on, on democratic institutions. Um, an evergreen company that's playing the long game can outlive the lifespans of uh, the politicians who are regulating them. Can you comment on um, the, that potentially problematic issue and um, how democracies ought to relate to companies with um, uh, very long lifespans? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, I have not seen in any of my conversations, any indication of regulatory capture by these companies. It may be happening, and we haven't had the conversation. The closest that we got to a conversation was Edward Jones, the financial institution. Um, there was a period of time in which they and all the other uh, sellers of mutual fund products had some, I think it was a commission structure, I'm not, I don't remember exactly, that was later deemed to be not potentially aligned with investor interest. And um, they ended up having to let their CEO go. He'd only been in the role for 18 months. He'd been in the company for 25 years. And uh, they basically said, if uh, the CEO doesn't resign, the company's going to go down. We're going to take the company down. And they were going to go after others, too. And so um, the next CEO, Jim Whittle, came in and made a commitment that we will never, ever, ever get close to any line when it comes to compliance. And we're going to be the most compliant financial services company in the country, and that's what we'll do. And they very, very much are dedicated to that. And what I generally hear from most people is, um, is that, you know, the government has an important role to play, and we need to make sure we play well with the government. And so it doesn't mean they're not frustrated. I, I had a conversation, I won't say with who because I'm not sure how comfortable they'd be, but I was in a manufacturing facility in the Midwest, and they had these uh, kind of like flags that were at the entryway of the, each of their facilities. And I was like, what, what are the flags? And he said, oh, we, have to, we can't follow them, but we have to know that those different regulatory agencies are actually on site right now in our facilities. 
And so we have flags. We put them up. And sometimes it'll be five flags or four flags or seven flags. And I'm like, what? And he said, oh, yeah. It's, he goes, like, we can't drop a drop of oil on the ground without somebody, like, literally wanting to write a report about what's happening. And, um, and he said, it's really hard to run a business when you've got this level of regulatory scrutiny. And so I've actually seen a bit of the opposite, which is less of the, the capture, which I know what you're talking about. You know, I think if you kind of look what's happening with private equity right now, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, I saw this memo that she wrote and kind of what she thinks the issues are with private equity. And I read it and I'm like, I don't disagree with a single thing she wrote in the entire thing. She's getting nowhere with like trying to like put some kind of controls on private equity. And I got to tell you, while venture capital is something I think it has a role and I think it actually is quite valuable whether you want to be an evergreen company or a venture-backed company, there's a lot of noble people doing really interesting stuff backed by venture capitalists. I wish they'd do a little bit more capital efficient with a lot less capital. But private equity, I mean, the stories I've heard that people will not discuss publicly about what's happened where private equity firms have come into their industry, you know, jaw-dropping, jaw-dropping. That's what I worry about. I think we're going to destroy some of our industries by, through private equity ownership. It's, it's, it's terrifying what they're doing. Sue, did you have a question? Please come up. <laughs> Actually, you started out to the question about what the proper role of government is yeah. in assuring that the, 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 the proceeds, the benefits or the consequences of the, capital, the capitalist system is addressed in public policy ways that make life you know, decent for most people. So, uh, but there, you know, there has been a movement in the past 30 years I mean, I went, to, I went to college in the 60s and 70s, and you, you could not find, like, somebody who was motivated by what values or social activism right. going to business school. It was not something that was done. But you can't go to a business school now without just being inundated with, with the, the, the students who want to integrate values into right. their careers. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, in that past 30 years when there's, you know, there's four or 5,000 B Corps, you know, 40 states now have benefit corporation statutes that allow for companies legally yeah. to achieve social benefits at yeah. the expense of financial returns. That's happened for 30 years. In that same period, we've witnessed the decline of public health, the decline of public education, the decline of public welfare, the kind of public security. All those kind of institutional de degradation has happened at the time when there is an increased focus on values for business. How do you, I mean, this is kind of a disturbing kind of anomaly. Maybe it's an anomaly or maybe there's going to be a tipping point where everything kind of changes. What's your attitude on that? Yeah, I, I don't know enough to tie those all together. That would be kind of beyond my, my experience. Um, I guess what I would say is that, and I think B Corp, they're trying to do something valuable which is get people to kind of uh, release from being a singularly um, engaged with just shareholder value creation. And, you know, it's people and it's planet, it's profits. Um, they don't discern between ownership types. And I think the biggest thing people are missing in our society is that ownership matters. Ownership sets values. Ownership sets strategy. And that's probably one of the biggest things that I've learned, like this idea of a long-term view. That is only allowed because the owners allow them to have a long-term view. It's what, you know, when, I mean, a number of our companies have no layoff policies and they've had no layoffs for 100 years, even in the worst of times. We had one company, the family put $300 million back into the company so they wouldn't cut a single job during COVID. 
And I know people that were part of our group that didn't take any PPP or any of the fact, they said, no, well, we've got enough money on the balance sheet, we'll take care of ourselves. Um, so to your question, kind of the degradation of society and all that, I, I can't speak to that. I can tell you with these evergreen companies, they're pretty wonderful companies. They're good places to work. They care deeply about people. Here's another thing that's kind of important about them. Ed Lazier, who's a, a professor at Stanford, had, uh, talked a lot about labor policy and labor economics. Um, I took a class from him, and he said, look, the problem in corporations today is nobody will invest in training. And the reason they invest in training is nobody stays in their, in their companies for very long. They're going to stay there for two or three years and move to the next company. And so there is no incentive to do training because the worst thing you can do is invest a lot of money in training and have your competitor pay them a higher salary and pull them away. So there is no incentive at all. All of these evergreen companies of any scale have very involved training programs. They have internal universities. They send people out and pay for their educations because the view they have is we want you to stay with us forever. And you see these tenures of these companies, and the average tenure, 10, 15, 20 years. One member that just joined recently, he's got three people that have been in the company for 50 years. That's just incredible. And so there's a different orientation when you take this long-term view, and I think it's quite beneficial in a lot of unexpected ways. Please, go ahead. Really, really thought-provoking uh, discussion. Thank, Thank you. you. So I have a question. So tw 2023, right? A startup mindset, believe in all the seven Ps from the core. Uh, explain to me in your thought, how might they see their, how might they visualize their future as an evergreen company? Is it a non-diluted funding route going through the NSFs, the, uh, you know, in healthcare, for instance, at the NIHs or, or it, what? It could be. It could be. It could be. Uh, well, the best way to get funded is customer funding, right? And now if you have a development period that requires you to wait, and I think healthcare is, has some unique characteristics because of that, but in general, if you can get to customer dollars earlier, and start generating some cash to finance your own business, and then have the incredible courage and patience not to rush. Because the natural instinct almost of every entrepreneur in today's society is, I have to go faster because I'm gonna lose the market opportunity. And so if I don't raise the capital, somebody else is gonna raise the capital, they're gonna steal my ideas and they're gonna win. There's very few markets in which you have that kind of winner-take-all benefit. And if you can actually, in that same market, maybe go to a different niche, serve that well, hopefully a high margin niche, you're being a much more discerning strategist, and that actually gets you early profitability in a smaller market, and then start building the company from there, and then have the patience to let things come to you. This is the most amazing thing I've learned about evergreen companies, is that when you're growing slower from your own profitability, it sends a signal to other market players, you're not going away, and you're not gonna have venture capitalists either sell you or shut you down or whatever it's gonna be. And so they start self-identifying as partners. And there's one company that's in our group that was just building high-quality products, was small and profitable, but not very big, and very worried about others raising venture capital. But Patagonia heard about them and said, we love your product quality, we love your values, and we love the fact you haven't raised outside capital. We're gonna really accelerate your business. And then REI showed up, and then Starbucks showed up. And they weren't making sales calls. These companies were calling on them. I'm talking about a pretty a remarkable dynamic. And it's not a story anybody talks about, just kind of this idea of building slower from your own profits, allowing partners to come towards you, and then do it in a way that does, is perhaps non-dilutive, but more importantly, I'm not worried about the dilution. 
Who are those financial partners you brought on board? Uh, are they going to require you to be sold or go public someday? Because the one thing, I just as a clarification, we're not saying people shouldn't raise money. You just need to raise money from people that don't demand an exit. Or you know, maybe get dividends down. or, yeah, yeah. Thank so, you. yeah. I think it would be really fun if, if business schools, and perhaps it's a challenge, got really creative about how to teach people how to bootstrap again. <laughs> and like how to, how to build companies, and, and there's all kinds of really cool tricks for how to do it. And also it forces an incredible discipline about like where are you going to focus your limited resources? Here you are. <laughs> Somebody's here. <laughs> anyway, it'd be an interesting challenge. Thank you. Hi. Um, while you were speaking, two things came up. Yeah. And I would love to hear your reflection on it. Uh, one is you said millennials, uh, corporations, anti-socialist, anti-capitalist. Uh, what about decentralization? I feel like what millennials really crave is like no more corporate because <laughs> you know, yeah. the certain the amount of power, like even if you think of Microsoft, like who wants to work for a corporation as an individual? Yeah. So what we or the millennials really crave is individuality, authenticity. Right. And that's why Uber partially has been so successful because kind of gives you like you're a freelancer, right? right. Like, yeah, minus the point. benefits and the healthcare. <laughs> uh, yeah, minus the so this whole job move, security. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're free. Yeah, you're free. <laughs> so oh, the illusion of decentralization, but I do believe there is a bit of future uh, yeah. there. And, and the second part uh, is, do you think it's possible for us as a society to rethink profit and public companies and profit is not a monetary value, but how clean is the water coming out of your factory? Like how, literally how many trees, the right. gates might disagree, but trees do matter. Yeah. <laughs> like how many trees do you plant? Right. Like that's profit. That's your social responsibility and that's you giving back. Right. Like, right. What is that number in your pension fund? You know? Right. So, well, yeah, so, so that one's a really hard problem. Which So decentralization on that one, I think you're just saying less large companies, regulatory capture, things like that. Uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't think that'd be healthy because I think there's some businesses that require a certain level of scale to be successful. Like you could never create the iPhone with 100 employees. It would just be impossible. The complexity is far too high. Even running a distribution company, you easily you need thousands of employees in a coordinated complex system to have that work well. So there is value in bigger companies. I think the question, the, the, I think the issue you guys are trying to get to is how come politicians are being bought by companies to do things to their benefit? I try to solve that problem. I don't know, I don't have the answer to that problem, but like I think the problem is is that there's regulatory capture um, because they're, they're willing to be captured. <laughs> they're willing to do that. And so maybe they're smarter minds that know how to solve that problem. But, um, and then on kind of the question of like, you know, how to define profits, you know, if you own an evergreen company, you can de decide how you want your profits done. I mean, that's the thing I want to encourage people to do. There are people that are in our group who have never taken a dollar out of their companies, their entire existence. They've given every single dollar back into the company for growth and back in for the employees. There's one that does $26 billion in revenue a year. The family will not take a distribution that is um, higher than the amount of money they gave to charity in that year. And this goes back 85 years. So when the CEO says, we'd like to do a distribution of $20 million or $25 million to the owner, the family says, show me the $25 million going to charity where it's going. And usually they want a two to one ratio. So if it's $100 million, $200 million, the family will never take out more money than we give to charity. 
and they have extremely generous benefits. They've got extremely generous compensation. But again, if you own your company and you have great values, you can choose as you wish. You can plant as many trees as you wish. And so I think the hard part ends up being when you have public companies and you've got 10,000, 20,000 shareholders, they all own stock for less than a year, and the CEO is sitting with the board of directors trying to figure out what is the will of the owners. There's no way to know the will of the owners because the owners are so diverse in what they want. So the excuse and the thing Milton Freeman will say is give the money to the owners, let them then give it to charity and do what they want because we can't figure out what 10,000 different people want. That is not a problem in evergreen companies. The owners will be very clear about what they want to see happen. And that's, that's part of the wonderful thing about it. So, so build an evergreen company and then show us how you do it. <laughs> Please come up. I have a question regarding macroeconomy. So uh, can you elaborate more? Um, so if with your idea, evergreen company, so if everyone uh, starts startups, uh, evergreen company, and they probably don't need to raise money in the beginning, and they probably don't go public, and where do all the investments go, like the pension fund and general public savings? They have nowhere to invest. Uh, then in that era, how does macroeconomy function? So your concern is we're so successful with evergreen companies that the pension funds have no place to invest. So that would be a great day. <laughs> so they can invest in real estate. They can invest in commodities. They can, there's other things they can invest in, but I don't think there ever will not be a public market. I mean, I think there is a value that the public market serves. There are people who don't want to have evergreen companies. There are many entrepreneurs that, and I know many of these in Silicon Valley, they built their company for only one reason to get rich, and that's all they did. So the public markets will always have them. I mean, and maybe then they'll get a better, more value-oriented CEO that wants to run it, but um, I think there's always gonna be greed. I think there's always gonna be people that are like, look, I want the bigger boat or the bigger house or I want the bigger ranch or whatever it is. And so there'll, there'll be a play for that. Um, you know, the, the, I, what, the complaint I've heard is not where pension funds can invest, but they say, what if all companies went evergreen, there's no public market? What does the individual do? The individual who's laboring every day and all they get is a paycheck, but they're smart enough to save their money and they want to put it somewhere where it's actually working on their behalf in a wonderful company. I'd like to solve that problem someday through evergreen companies. I don't have an answer, but I think if they could invest their money in a whole portfolio of evergreen companies, that could be pretty interesting. So I think some new ideas will come forward. like we're right on time. If we have one more, go ahead, please. Dave, thanks so much for the, this, these really fascinating reflections. Just one um, request to, follow, uh, to say a little bit more about something you mentioned along the way, which was that some of these evergreen companies face uh, tax challenges. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about the nature of those and whether there's any regulatory solution that might I mean, it seems like we should be encouraging people to found companies that invest in their workers and right. look to the long term. Yeah. And so, yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah. So this this is just estate tax issues uh, related to if you're a founder and let's say you just spend all your time building a very successful company, you get up to a billion dollars in value, and you didn't plan ahead for the transition, then the the billion dollars, there will be taxes on transfer of that to your children. And, and most likely it's going to your children, maybe your spouse first, then your child, or if it's split with your spouse. And that tax bill might be $500 million. 
And so the company cannot afford to pay that tax bill. They cannot borrow enough money to do it. So you have to sell the company to actually pay the taxes, which then leaves the other $500 million for the family, which is okay, but the company is no longer an independent company. And so what this is the trick. And so if you're, if you're, an, uh, if you're a founder and you think you're going to build an evergreen company and you think you're going to build one that's significant, you want to transfer your stock into a generational skipping trust early in its life cycle, which is not cheap. You're going to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on legal support to do it. So you want to make sure the company's far enough along that it's probably going to survive and grow. And then by moving into that, the family will never pay taxes again. Now, the trust will own the stock. No individuals will own it. And the family members are only beneficiaries. And we typically see in these cases, depending on the founder, sometimes the founder says, you know, the resources of the company will not be shared with my family, and they can get enough for college, living, and they may tie the income to the amount that a professor would make at Cal. It cannot be a dollar more than that, and so then the rest of the funds stay within the trust for forever, and those get reinvested. Or another, um, they'll have different rules than that. I'm just saying there's a whole spectrum of rules, but that's a really important move. And if you don't do it, and you get too far along, then you start doing stuff like buying life insurance. And you buy very expensive life insurance. It can cost like $20, $25 million a year for this life insurance to try to avoid a $500 million tax bill on these more successful companies. And that's, that's just was for lack of planning. So that's one of the things we're doing, which is really interesting, is half our members are founders. And we're like, hey, look, if you really think you're building a serious evergreen company, you've got a tax bill coming that's going to destroy the company. So you need to figure out a way to kind of deal with this. And some people, they deal with it, and other people just ignore it, too. They're like, well, we'll figure it out further along. Like, okay, it's your company. Do as you wish. <laughs> you good? Any others? One more? Go ahead. I was actually curious from, like, the perspective of an, a newer career person, is there any industries that an evergreen company could never exist in that you found that just the industry is just intrinsically against the existence of an evergreen company? I haven't discovered that yet, but when I started this, I assumed that there was going to be a very narrow number of industries that we would actually have evergreen companies in. Mm -hmm. And what I found that they're actually, they're all over. It's, it's incredible. And so, like in software, for example, you'd think that you know, those companies would naturally not be evergreen companies, but we've got a number of very successful, it's a third, I think it's our third largest sector of, of members are software companies. And these are just people who said, I didn't want to go the venture capital route, I bootstrapped the company at a certain scale, and we're doing quite well. I mean, the amazing thing about software, which is so non-intuitive, it's one of the most capital efficient businesses you could ever build. You can get to profitability very early in a niche market with a small number of programmers. And with AI, the efficiency now is going to go through the roof. Um, like, for example, one of uh, Apple's top uh, developers, um, he uh, basically led the entire development of OS X for them. He was also head of engineering for Next. I talked to him about this. And he said he can now build a company, a significant technology. It used to take him about 100 very high-quality engineers. He says he's down to about five is all it needs. And so the, I would love to see, particularly in the software domain, just a tremendous number of evergreen companies get started because it's a very viable path for them given this kind of efficiency with AI. So that may be a, a positive beneficiary of some of the AI stuff that's happening. Well, wonderful. Good?
Thank you, Dave, for such an illuminating lecture. I think uh, we could have gone on and on. That's what happens with great talks. But uh, you really inspired us to think, I think, and open our minds and consider things. I couldn't help but uh, think about you know, some European models, which are oriented around stakeholders, or the Tata Group, or others in various emerging markets, also follow this type of this set of principles. And uh, there's a future if there's a critical mass. And uh, I think you will get your passion, but also your vision of the world heading in that direction. So at this point, I'd like to thank you. I'd like to thank the Tanner Committee and all the university leaders who are here. Uh, I'd like to thank a distinguished guest. I'd like to thank all of you who stayed till the end and made this such an engaging lecture and very much look forward to following everything that happens and, and certainly following what uh, folks do as a result of your lecture as well. Thank you very much and uh, all the good. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.